Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it back. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hey guys, I'm Tad, host of A Tad Predictable on the EPL Index channel. You can find me at Tad Predicts on Twitter. Thanks for having me back, Kev. Yeah, likewise, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm a Spurs fan based in Belfast, and I was formerly the chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Steve, actually, funnily enough, I was just at New York Spurs a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm sure that they all send you their best, but I, I honestly only saw like three people that I knew and there were like a hundred other people that I didn't, but <laughs> different story for another time, I suppose. Uh, but I wanted to start off this show uh, talking about the fact that we have now passed the quarter mark of the season in the Premier League. And I just wanted to touch base with you guys on, on the clubs that you think have have outperformed what you assumed and the clubs that maybe have fallen a bit short of what you predicted coming into the season? Yeah, I think um, obviously being a Liverpool fan, <laughs> we've not performed the way we expected to at the beginning of the season. I thought that we would struggle to um, launch a title challenge this season considering our summer business. Uh, and it's sort of coming to fruition now. We needed to either refresh the squad or change the tactics that we were going to use to accommodate a aging squad, so to speak. And we kind of did neither and hoped that <laughs> either no one would notice or the players wouldn't notice and would just carry on doing what they've been doing uh, for the last couple of years. So that's that's been disappointing. It's gone from, I guess, from most fans, a title challenge and a trophy to just hoping we get top four um, so that there is going to be, you know, money in the summer to to sort it out because we are one of those clubs that I don't think if we don't if we don't make top four, I don't see us spending too much money. The likes of the the Bellinghams and stuff that have been linked with Liverpool for a while now, I I just don't see that happening. Um, teams that have impressed me, I think Fulham have been the the biggest one, and I remember Kev, you had. Um, one of your mates on, I think he comes on on this show quite a bit, uh, the Fulham fan, and he was yeah. quite bullish about Fulham coming into this season. I remember listening uh, when you had him on, and I was skeptical, but it it seems like everything he was saying was right. They're they're a completely different team to the one we're expected to seeing in recent years coming up, and and it's been really good to see. Um, another impressive team, I think, Brighton obviously started the season off hot. But unfortunately for them, lose the manager. It's a bit unstable there at the moment. But you're assuming they're going to be able to still be fine this season and maybe cause some issues for for other teams. And then at the other end of the table, you've got teams like Leicester, 
um, who you weren't expected to be down there. West Ham, probably not expecting them to be down there after the season they had last year. I think Wolves aren't just unfortunate, especially once they finally back their manager, then having their their main striker getting injured. you got Jimenez that still suffers from injuries as well. So, yeah, I think disappointing, but unlucky for them. Um, Leicester seem to be starting to turn things around. So we'll see if they're able to keep that up. And then obviously one we'll get to soon enough is Aston Villa. When you look at their squad on paper and every season when I, you know, in recent history, when I look at their transfer window, I'm always impressed by their transfer window. And then it just doesn't seem to translate to the pitch. So it will be interesting to see if they're going to be able to do that moving forward. Yeah, I, I think certainly uh, from a Spurs perspective, you know, it, it really doesn't matter how we performed in the preseason. That seems so long ago now. Um, you know, after a reasonably good start to the season, we seem to be back to the same old, same old, the same old Tottenham. And and especially in the way that it, it didn't really take long to puncture any preseason optimism surrounding Conte and the new signings. I mean, I think the, the important thing is we're, we're now into a very crucial period of the season with the, you know, the disruption of the World Cup to come. And and we seem to, if not lost, then we've certainly misplaced whatever sense of belief in ourselves that we, we had at the start of the year that got us off to such a good start. I mean, t- today's defeat to Newcastle was, was a case in point. And I was going to mention Newcastle as one of the teams that had impressed me. Um, I, I was at the corresponding game last season when we beat them 5-1, but but everybody knew today was would be totally different because they're much more organized. Their defense particularly is terrific. And we basically are, are far less confident in ourselves, uh, especially uh, when we're when our attacks misfiring. But, you know, f- uh, fair play to Newcastle today. They they wanted it more. They went about their job very, very efficiently. They used the high press. And then, you know, they wasted a bit of time to get their breath back towards the end. But that has the advantage of, you know, letting their players recover and winding up the opposition. So, uh, but regardless of, of their per- performance, you know, we look really leggy today. We look very leggy, as as indeed we did against Manchester United, especially in midfield. I think Basuma, who I think is a terrific player, but he needs to take control more if we're going to play that system. Uh, our overall ex- execution today, whether that was, you know, finishing, tackling or passing, was was generally pretty poor. Um, up front, I think, obviously, having Richarlison and Kulisevsky out at the same time changes the, the, the dynamic of, you know, what, what options are available. Uh, but you can't escape the fact that Harry needs a rest. Harry Kane needs a rest. I mean, he started something like 42 straight league games, I think. And you have to, you know, if you have a squad, you have to rely on them at some point. Um, but apart from us, uh, who, as I say, apart from individual games, have neither really impressed or disappointed. It's just a kind of a shrug of the shoulders and a return to type, unfortunately. Um, it, it really has been, as, as, as Tad was saying, it's a, a, you know, a really fascinating first, first part of the season. Uh, and he also mentioned one of the, you know, the promoted teams, Fulham, Fulham are doing really well. Bournemouth also, I think, if you um, if you look at their last sort of five or six games, they've they've established a good solid run of form, even though their goal, their goal difference still reflect reflects that one freak result, uh, as well as those big losses to to City and Arsenal. I think of, of the other promoted teams, I'd be churlish to say that Forest have been disappointing since uh, you know I think their season just took longer to start. 
yesterday was obviously a great result for them, and they may be starting to 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 gel out of the chaos of so many new signings. So a poor start for them, I think, was probably unavoidable. But you know, they're they're a proper traditional top flight club, and I'd really like to see them do well. So it'll, it'll be interesting how their next few games go. Um, another team that falls into that category is is Leeds, and uh, they seem to have lost their way relatively quickly. Maybe. Jesse Marsh is out of ideas. Maybe they miss Calvin Phillips more than they thought they would. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Leicester certainly had a disappointing start to the season, but you know they seem to be finding their rhythm again after their last two results. Um, as you say, we're, we'll come back to talk about Villa later, and they had a, a very fine win today. But obviously, an awful lot is going to depend on on who comes in and steers them um, from from now on. Um, Overall, I think I think we're still at a point where it's still early enough where any of the bottom half of the table, or certainly the bottom eight, uh, could easily find themselves in a, in a bit of trouble if they have a, a bad run of three or four straight games. I mean, going into today, for example, there was there was six points between eighth and eighteenth, so you know anything can happen over the next few weeks. Uh, as for the, the teams I've been most impressed with, I know this is this is a sacrilegious, Kevin. I, I apologize, but I have to say Arsenal. I mean, they turned us over pretty easily, and they're they're playing with a, a, a great collective confidence that we have lost. I think at the moment, and the key is if whether they can sustain that through the rest of the season. Um, I mean, in today's game, their their movement going forward in the first half was was terrific, but then they let Southampton score a very clever goal to even it up. Uh, Arsenal's young players are are as good, if not better, than anyone else in the league, and I think obviously Arteta is starting to to get what he wants out of them. And if you don't mind me saying so, Tad, I, I think they have probably taken already taken over Liverpool's position as the main challenger to City this year. I mean, if you look at the other so-called top four teams, United, Chelsea, and and dare I say it, us, uh, we're just too unpredictable and inconsistent at the moment. Uh, I mean, that could change after the the, the winter um, transfer window. But I think the most important thing in that top four dynamic is that uh, Ten Hag and Potter, I think, will turn out to be really good appointments. Uh, and that could that could set the course for um, for the rest of the season. Oh, and what, before I, I stop, one of the other things I've been really impressed with about Newcastle uh, is how they're continuing to develop in the right way. You know, they're not going out and splashing the cash, e- e- even though they can, uh, but they're building a solid base that, that they can grow from incrementally. And I think uh, I think Eddie Howe is, is doing a really good job there. And uh, it, it, it'll be interesting at the end of the season to see where they finish and where they finish relative to the teams that are currently around and above them. Uh, but so far, it's going very, very well for them. Mm. Yeah, Newcastle is a, a really interesting point. Obviously, much to you and I chagrin today, uh, Steve. But Newcastle finishing the the day in the top four, um, which I'm not sure a lot of people would have anticipated coming into the season. I think, like you said, Steve, there wasn't like loads of money being spent. Um, well, in one position anyway. It wasn't superstars that all came in. Isak, probably the most um, commonly known player that that joined in this summer window, but there they are in the top four. Do we think that's sustainable for them this season? Or are we thinking this is kind of that what we see every year? It's been West Ham before it's been Southampton before where these teams kind of like peak up early in the season and then ultimately finish where we expect like somewhere in that six to 10 range. Yeah. I think that that might actually describe us this year. (laughs) 
Kevin as well. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's no reason why Newcastle can't sustain it. Um, uh, you know, they they have they organize themselves well. They have a good game plan. As I say, their defense is really impressive. Um, I, I think, as I say, I think Eddie Howe really has organized them well. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'd love to see them give it a go to break into the top four. Yeah, I think for me, the interesting thing will be the December or November slash December break that the likes of Newcastle are going to be afforded. Usually, that's the busy end of the, the, the season where you see teams like Man City and Liverpool, where, when they have depth, they usually start to pull away from teams. But this could be a good chance for the likes of Newcastle to just reset. Um, if they need to do transfer business, we know they're, they're not shy to do it. Um, maybe not to the extent we thought they would do it or, or to the expense we thought they would do it, but they still do good business at the moment. So it, it could actually work out in their favour that they do get this break to just reset. I think the interesting thing for the likes of Newcastle is how the break works for teams like Liverpool and Spurs, where I think the break can't come soon enough for Liverpool, for example. They just need to try and stay within touching distance of top four in time, you know, and then when the break comes, try and sort out whatever they need to sort out and and hope to have a strong second half of the season. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see which teams use the break more effectively. And, and that's going to be something we're not used to in the Premier League. Yeah. Yeah, that World Cup break is going to be really fascinating uh, for sure to see who improves, who I almost said de-improves, who gets worse <laughs> um, after that period. But uh, another club that both of you mentioned there in passing was Aston Villa, who we probably should just delve into a bit more. Obviously, uh, Steven Gerrard was sacked midweek, uh, just a few weeks shy of one full year uh, in charge at the club. I uh, was just curious if you guys think that's the right decision and what went wrong during his tenure that, that led to him not even lasting a full year. Look, I've, I've been a, a big critic of Steven Gerrard and um, I guess I can throw Frank Lampard in there as well. I, for me, I think they are the two worst managers in the league in terms of just um, tactical aptitude and, and everything that goes into being a manager. But of course, they're still young in their managerial careers and they can go on to learn and grow and and be a lot better. But specifically with Gerard, I always felt, um, and we saw this especially at Rangers, is that he's more the motivator. Um, he's not really the coach type manager. Um, he He's done really well to surround himself with a really good, really strong coaching team. And if you you know, go around Europe and, and, and listen to some of the compliments that Rangers were getting at the time when he was at Rangers. And then similarly, when he moved to Aston Villa was, well, he's he's got a really good coaching group. And, and in the coaching circles around Europe, they were known as, you know, those are the guys that take the day-to-day training, so to speak. I think Gerard's just sort of the, the figurehead at the top of all of that, and he's not necessarily in the nitty-gritty of it, but he can maybe give the team talks and, and get the people riled up. And maybe if he does see some tactical things, he brings that into it. But in terms of the true day-to-day running of things and 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 the, the coaching slash managing of things, he's always surrounded himself with really good guys. And then you see at the beginning of this season, he ends up losing, you know, 
his his big lieutenant in Michael Beale, who goes to QPR. And I think not being able to slash not having enough time to then go and find a replacement that is going to do as much work at such a high level as Beale was doing for Gerard and who would be willing to do that. You know, not many assistant managers want to do all the work and all the credit goes to Gerard, so to speak. It's it's going to be hard to find many people that are willing to do that. So I think that was his downfall this season was losing the guy that's really been the brains behind, in my opinion, the brains behind sort of his tactical evolution and all of that. And whether or not going forward, he's going to be able to to find that, uh, I don't know. But yeah, so for me, I, I expected him to not last the season at Aston Villa considering how ambitious their owners have been and and are portraying to be it was always going to be a tough task for him and then me not thinking he was going to be able to handle things after he lost such a key person to his coaching staff yeah I, I thought it was an uphill battle for him and I think for both sides for Villa it's the right choice in my opinion and then for Gerard I think it's it's the right choice for him to then go regroup um I'm hoping he takes a bit of a break before jumping into his next job and sort of takes the time to figure out what he wants to be as a manager and 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 maybe get a, a new coaching team set up again, um, similar to what he did before he went to Rangers and then try again maybe in in the championship or League One and, and then slowly move up the, the leagues. Yeah. Yeah, those are all very good points, actually, Tad. And I wanted to ask you, uh, from a Liverpool perspective, is there a a specific Liverpool coach or manager that you think Gerrard modelled himself on? I think it was more to do with the the coaching and learning he got when he was, because he came into our sort of youth setup, the under-23s, under-18s, and he learned from the likes of Alex Inglethorpe, who I think we got from Spurs, Mm. Um, the Michael Beals of the world. So that's pretty much where he's he's gotten his education from. And he's taken, he then took Michael Beal with him. And Liverpool sort of gave that blessing to say, you can take him with you. And and so, again, I think that's what why he needs this time away to just try and define what it is he wants to do. If he's not going to have that security blanket um, below him, then he, I, I struggle to see the actual Steven Gerrard identity from a tactical perspective, because it, it, from what I've heard and from what I've seen, a lot of the work has been done by the people underneath them. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's really important. I mean, it, it must be terribly disappointing for Gerrard to go from winning the Scottish Premiership for the first time in many years to and, and seeing a team that you basically built get to a European final. To, to struggling the way that he has in the Premiership. And I'm not sure it really has anything to do with the managerial talent gulf between Scotland and the Premier League. Um, I mean, you know, there, there is something organisationally wrong, I think, there. I mean, according to the BBC, going into this game uh, today, Villa were the joint second lowest scorers in the Premier League. Uh, but in just 14 minutes today, they scored as many goals as they had managed in 409 minutes under Gerrard. Wow. So, you know, there's there's organizationally something clearly wasn't clicking. And when, when a team turns in, you know, a performance like they did today, immediately after the boss gets sacked, 
then you have to wonder what what's what's going on, not just uh, tactically and and organisationally, but it, with the dynamic between the manager and the players. You know, did they did they think that they had a point to prove today? Um, but uh, you know, now they have an interim boss, um, uh, Dunk, uh, who used to work with uh, with Dean Smith. So you know, maybe by going going backwards, they can go forwards um, from a Villa perspective. But whether it was the right thing, um, I mean, I agree with Tad. It was the right thing for Gerard, I think, to regroup and and try and you know rebuild his career that way. But for for Villa, it's only the right thing if they get the right man in, the right uh, person in to replace him. And you know, we won't know that really until until the end of the season. So you know, if the if the interim boss can steady the ship and and you know see who might be out there, I mean, obviously there'll be. There'll be a bunch of managers out of contract after the World Cup, so maybe you know they don't need to rush into an appointment. Um, you know, maybe a maybe an emotional homecoming for Gareth Southgate. Who knows? Yeah, I think you kind of have to wonder what is out there for them because we mentioned Michael Beale a lot already, and he turned down Wolves and uh, Aston Villa already. Wolves obviously just largely giving up and sticking with an interim until uh, the end of the year. Uh, and after that World Cup. So, yeah, th- that is always the big question is is deciding whether or not it was the right choice largely depends on who's next. And if there isn't anyone that's next, there's a little bit bigger of a question mark. But as you say, today's uh, win <laughs> feels pretty resounding compared to what had been going on before that. Uh, I also just wanted to mention some of the recruitment that took place um, while Gerard was there and a little bit before as well. Because it didn't ever feel cohesive. They have assembled a lot of really, really talented players, but some of whom play in the same positions as one another. So some people are playing out of position. Um, the the center back pairing was always going to be a little bit weird. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to see who comes in next. Because in theory, if you just have a smorgasbord of players with no real tactical identity in mind when bringing them in. That could benefit whoever comes in next because there are no players that were like specifically fitting Gerard's system that specifically won't fit whoever comes next. Um, But not only uh, do I agree with large swaths of what both of you have said, but I also think he wasn't really helped. But it could also have been a reflection of the fact that he didn't have a firm tactical identity. So they were just like, let's get as many talented players as we can and maybe it'll work out, Uh, which certainly we've seen at Tottenham before. So it's it's possible (laughs) that that was the thinking, but... Yeah, will be really, really interesting to see how they perform through this little mini remainder before the World Cup and then who they appoint likely after it. Although it, it could be before. Are there any names that you guys think would fit particularly well at Villa or do you think it will be like a Wolf situation and we'll just be waiting till about January time? I think it's going to have to be a waiting situation for them. Similarly to Wolves, they were going for um, Ruben Omerum. Uh, the sporting manager, and I think he's been quite clear in saying he he kind of wants to see things out there, um, at least for the season, unless maybe Aston Villa come in with a really big offer um, wages-wise. I, I don't think the release clause will be an issue for, for Villa. I think it's been dropped from 30 to about 10 million. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a bit more reasonable. And um, they know that some if of the they advanced names, in the Champions League as well. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that would be an exciting one. Maybe that would be one that links up more with what Villa are trying to do, where it's uh, a talented team with a new young manager that's got brought, you know new ideas, um, has has the pedigree of you know of president of what he's done 
in Portugal in, in recent years. So that could be an exciting one. Um, the likes of Unai Emery, I, I wonder if he would take a job like that. I don't see... I get from a Villa perspective going after the likes of Poch and Tuchel because why not? Um, you might as well try. But I, I think it's, it is fair to say that the likes of Poch, if they're patient, they're going to be a lot bigger jobs coming up soon enough for them to take. Um, Sean Dyche, I think, could be interesting but would conflict maybe with the style of play or the personnel that Villa have at the moment and the direction they looked like they were going. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'll be more than happy to see Sean Dyke be given a chance with a club that I think is going to give him a lot more backing than he got at Burnley and then see if he can um, make something of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. And I think they're probably going to be looking predominantly for someone who's managed in the Premier League before rather than coming from one of the European leagues. Uh, I mean, certainly when <laughs> when Potch and Tuchel were were being mentioned, um, uh, you know, back bef- just even before uh, Gerard uh, lost his job, I I thought that Tuchel would have been a better fit uh, than Pochettino because of you know if you look at what Tuchel did when he came in at Chelsea, the first task was to reorganize the defense and try and get um, try and get them playing in a in a in a more confident way because they knew they were less likely to concede. Uh, and open them up a little bit, but uh, I mean, who knows? I, I I don't think either of them would would probably, as Tad said, I don't think either of them would would take that job. Um, they're probably waiting for for the, the the dominoes to fall in the shakeout after the World Cup. Got it. Well, yeah, like we said, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. But yeah, I agree. I, I think we'll be waiting for a while before we know who the next permanent manager of Aston Villa will be. Uh, we'll wrap up this section talking about the Ronaldo incident. I, everyone has already had their say. We just record on Sundays, so we, we hadn't gotten to it yet. But in case someone somewhere didn't know, uh, Ronaldo refused to come off the bench against Tottenham midweek. Uh, he was told he was going to be dropped by Ten Hag and that he, he's facing a, a million-pound club fine. Um, he seemed apologetic over social media, at least. But I was just curious how you think your clubs would have handled a situation like this or if you've been in a situation like this before and how it was handled then. Yeah, look, uh, I expected something like this at the beginning of the season. In, um, I know we did uh, on our podcast, on my podcast, a tad predictable. Me and executive producer Guy, we did reckless predictions uh, that we thought were going to happen first in the first sixteen weeks of the season, and then for the whole season. And one of my predictions for the first sixteen weeks was Ronaldo wasn't going anywhere because. I always say this when people talk about transfers. It's all well and good wanting someone to go somewhere or or leave or to sell a player. But I always ask, where are they going to go? And there just wasn't a team that could afford, one, to to take on Ronaldo's wages. And two, um, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but to carry him and what he brings in terms of he's not as involved from an athletic standpoint as he used to be. But obviously, Ronaldo, you know, he'll still get his goals. He'll still contribute in that sense. But he's not the Ronaldo from the past. So the only teams that I could see doing that are the likes of Bayern Munich, um, who obviously um, they went with Mane, and I think they were happy to just go with that and, and not bring an added player. I think the Chelsea owner would have wanted Ronaldo, but Tuchel wasn't interested in bringing that sort of drama 
to Chelsea and and then you start looking around and there's not many other teams that could get him or bring him in. I don't think Real Madrid would have wanted to bring him back in with the way Benzema's playing. He's certainly not going to Barcelona. So it, it was starting to get really, really unlikely for him to leave. And then, um, yeah, in terms of the actual prediction I made, I said that he, he's not going to leave and then he's only going to start at he, or he's going to start less than eight of the 16 games to start the season. Because I, th- I thought Ternog was going to get to a point where he's going to realize that this team, as a team, plays better when Ronaldo is not on the pitch. Um, but as I said, Ronaldo will still get his goals, even if he's playing, and the team suffers for it. But if he still gets his goals, I called him the arsonist and the firefighter because um, he'll still score goals, but part of the reasons you're nil-nil 80 minutes into the game is because he's stifling everyone else in the team, and then he'll go get the winner, and then everyone's happy, or you know he'll get, get the goal that gets you the draw. But for United, for Ten Hag, for sort of rebuilding that squad, they needed to not have Ronaldo involved. So I'm not surprised with um, his lack of involvement so far. In terms of the fine, I, I think it's right from United. They have to show some sort of authority there um, because you almost feel as though Ronaldo is one of those bigger than, you know, the club type of players. I mean, no one's bigger than the club and we, we know those cliches, but Ronaldo is certainly a, a figure that draws that sort of attention. So United had to stamp their authority in some sort of way. Would Liverpool have handled it the same way? Um, I don't think they would have. I think Liverpool would have probably just quietly gotten him away from the first team picture, whether it means... (sighs) I have to be careful how I say this, but (laughs) I genuinely think he would have... Liverpool would have reported him picking up some kind of injury and said, look, um, he's injured, he can't play at the moment. And behind the scenes, they would have had an agreement with him that, look, we're going to find you a deal in January. We're going to try and move you on, but we need to get you out of the headlines Mm. and the limelight. You're you're a distraction to the team at the moment, and the manager's just not going to play at you. You don't see eye-to-eye to him. So we need to, you know, if a player's injured, not many journalists are going to be asking questions, why isn't that player playing? Well, he's injured. He can't play. So knowing Liverpool's past, I'm pretty sure he would have picked up some sort of knock or injury that would have sidelined him for roughly two to three months, I'd say. Um, (laughs) And then miraculously being able to be fit just in time for for a move in January. Yeah, first off, I I, I have to say, and and thanks for mentioning it, Ted, I I was really happy to see Benzema win the the Ballon d'Or and uh, and get the the global recognition that comes with that. Uh, I was thinking at the time that you know he and and Robert Lewandowski or uh, just had the supreme bad luck to have played at the same time as as Messi and Ronaldo. You know, two players clearly head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, but you know, players like like Benzema and, and uh, Lewandowski would basically have attained legend status anywhere they played. You know. Um, Ronaldo seems to be dealing with the idea of being a mere mortal much differently than Messi. And it, it, it looks now that, uh, as you said, uh, the, the bridges have probably been burned at United. Um, letting him go, I think, was was made easier by the fact that Ten Hag is new. 
and is now starting to become relatively successful without the expensive star player that he inherited. And I think the more the more he builds an identity for United without Ronaldo, um, that will that will just strengthen that that sense of uh, that. Yeah, you know, it, it's like the Alex Rod, the Rod Rodriguez situation when he signed for the Texas Rangers. You know, Buck Showalter said, you know, we can we can finish last without him. Um, so yeah, there there is a sense that you have a, a club identity or a team identity that either involves a certain player or doesn't. Um, so uh, uh, as for how our own clubs might have might deal with the situation, I think that very much depends on how uh, experienced and self confident the manager is, uh, as well as of course the money situation behind the scenes. And and for that reason, I don't think Ronaldo would ever have ended up at Tottenham to begin with. Uh, and also, I, I don't think if you if you believe some of the gossip that it would be a particularly good idea for for Chelsea to take him on. I think the nearest situation that Spurs came to to dealing with something like that was was with Adi Bayor, um, and uh, where the club was actively shopping the, the player was actually looking for a for a, uh, another team to take him on. Um, as for Ronaldo, you know. I think he could end up in the MLS or China or somewhere that will massage his ego and pay him whatever he wants. But, you know, whoever ends up managing him next is just is just going to have to suck it up if it drives shirt sales. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to try to find a place in Europe that can keep him in that Champions League uh, all-time leading scorer spot. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I agree with both of you. I think he... Uh, Maybe doesn't benefit the team on the pitch much. Obviously helps with shirt sales and stuff like that that I'm sure the Glazers are are interested in. And I think that's probably why Todd Bowley is also interested in it, despite uh, now multiple managers being like, yeah, you know, maybe <laughs> not, though. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to see how they resolve this issue. I mean, everybody's saying the right stuff. I agree with you, Tad. I think it, at, a, at a different club, maybe we don't know as much as we do know. Um, but now, you know, Ten Hag said he had to be punished. The board said that they had to back the manager. Ronaldo apologized. So, like, in theory, all of that looks nice externally. But maybe some of that's to preserve value if they're going to try to sell him. Or, yeah, I, I don't know. It, just outright releasing him in the middle of the season, I think, would be pretty intense. If Ronaldo was somehow willing to kind of be a, an off-the-bench goal-scoring option... Uh, much like his old Real Madrid teammate Gareth Bale ultimately proved to be in his return to Tottenham, um, then I think that's something that's interesting. But you should not be building your team or the way you're setting up around Ronaldo if you're Ten Hag playing the style that he that he used in, in the Netherlands and is somewhat instilling more week by week at United. I know a lot of people felt he was basically just reusing Solskjaer's tactics there at the beginning, but I feel like he's getting much closer. I think the... The fact that he went up against two consecutive teams that played a back three um, really helped against Tottenham and Chelsea um, because I think that that suited well, especially pressing high. And I think that's why Chelsea adjusted by by switching to a back four, something that Conte is far less likely <laughs> to ever do. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think I agree with, I may have been way earlier when <laughs> you mentioned that uh, Ten Hag and, and Potter, both being really good managers, could change what, what the top of the table looks like come the end of the year. And I think... Manchester United backing Ten Hag over Ronaldo in that way, like Tad, like you said, knowing that the club is bigger than the players is definitely the right choice. And then it's up to Ronaldo whether or not he can accept being uh, not the key man there or if he is indeed going to try to push 
push his way out of the club. Uh, all right, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Tad, we'll start off with you. I think both of you mentioned it in the opening, but uh, not sure many people saw the Nottingham Forest win against Liverpool happening, although there have been a glut of injuries, which we can get to in a little bit. But I was just curious, first, your thoughts on the match and the performance and the result. Um, Yeah, the performance was flat. Um, It's weird this season how they've almost gone out of their way to stop Salah getting the ball, which is very unlike the way Liverpool have played in recent years. I mean, he's clearly the best player, especially from an offensive type of things. And if you keep designing plays or tactics or patterns of play that reduce the amount of touches that he gets of the ball or reduces the amount of progressive passes that he's able to do, it it seems insane to be doing something like that. So something is weird there for me. Um, in terms of the game itself, I think I think it's what you're going to see from Liverpool until sort of December when they do get their injured players back and slash are able to do something in the transfer market is there a lot of the players that would give them that first or second or third goal to really put teams away are now gone. So they don't really, in terms of injury, so they don't have that firepower to run away from teams. So so games are always going to be close uh, for Liverpool until December. We saw even the, the City game, it's a 1-0 win. The West Ham game, it's a 1-0 win. And then, you know, against Nottingham Forest, they then lose it. But in all of those games, Liverpool could have easily lost all of those and they could have easily drawn all of those. They could have easily won all of those. Like, there's no definitive... Um, answer in terms of what the scoreline should have been in any of those three games. And I think that's going to be the downfall for Liverpool um, heading into December. And and it's kind of why I mentioned it's just about staying as close as they can to the top four and, and then trying to fix it in December is because it's going to be some of these games where Liverpool will be 1-0 ahead. They're not going to be able to get that player off the bench that can inject that additional attacking force and and get a second or a third. So, it will be 1-0 until the 70th minute or something. The other team will then say, well, there's 20 minutes left. Let's take our chance. The pressure is going to be on Liverpool. And then it depends on whether they can hold on or they concede. Or it, It's just going to be like that, unfortunately, for Liverpool fans, um, for, for the foreseeable. But before this week started, um, and it bled into the Man City result, 
um, when, when we beat Man City, I got quite a bit of uh, stick for maybe not celebrating it as much as other people were celebrating it. But I, I mentioned before the week started that, look, this week, you look at the nine points that are available, Man City, West Ham, Nottingham Forest. Now, I suppose the super fan, Liverpool fans would say, yeah, we're going to get all nine points. Objectively, and looking at the way the season has gone, you're probably going to get six out of nine there, um, with City being the loss. Um, and then maybe if you want to push it, you could say maybe they can get a draw against City, considering Liverpool's or Van Dijk's record at Anfield, and I guess that ties to Liverpool's record at Anfield. Maybe they can get a draw against City. So you're looking at seven points, six points, that sort of range for the week. Now, for me, the City, the city win doesn't really mean much unless you then go and get nine points because you were already expecting to get six or seven points during the week. Um, and if anything, for me, I think it's worse to win the City game than lose one of the other two games because you get the high of beating City and then you end the week on a low from not getting points from one of the other teams that you would have expected to get points. So I, I was cautious after the City game because... Uh, I thought based on the way we're playing the season, um, the players would get up for the City game, but not be as up for it, so to speak, for the other games and would probably drop points in the other two. And it, it turned out that way. So six points from nine, that's kind of what I expected before the week started. It's just now it's worse off because it's come, the drop points have come against a team you expected to win and it's at the end of the week. So it leaves that sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, the, like I said, in introing that section, the, the injuries and then what was it, an ear infection for Tiago? <laughs> just just really, really don't help. And it's, it's an all too familiar tale. Liverpool obviously top of the injury table already for this season with minutes and matches missed thus far. We, we, but I, we some of that is yeah, self-inflicted in my totally. opinion. Well, that's what like, I was going to ask, is we've had this conversation over the last three years that this always seems to be the case. Is this a Klopp thing? Is it a physio thing? I know there have been a lot of changes made in that department as well. Yeah, it can't just be bad luck after whatever, three plus years now. Well, the, the, there was murmurs of the players were overcooked in preseason. And there was a miscalculation there where they thought if we go hard in preseason to basically get the players to mid-season level fitness and they carry that until December and then they effectively get another preseason and then you do the same thing, you, you basically have two mid-season forms that carry you for the season and that seems to have been a miscalculation apparently. Um, but in terms of the injuries, uh, whether or not they've overcooked the players, I'm looking at the personnel. You know, for example, Matip is going to get injured at some point in the season. You know um, Gomez is going to get injured at some point in the season. You know Henderson's going to get injured at some point in the season. You know Firmino's going to get injured. You know Jota's going to get injured. You know Firmino's going to get injured. You know Curtis Jones is going to get injured. You know Thiago's going to get injured. You know Fabinho's going to... So all these players, you, you know when you... I guess when you go into the season, you factor that risk that based on what we've seen in the past, and you don't get less injury prone the older you get. So all of these players have shown in the past that they do get niggles and injuries throughout the season. 
if you then go into the season with that same majority of that same crop of players and you don't look to bring in players that are a bit more robust, I think that's self-inflicted. Like, Thiago's going to give you at most 28 Premier League games a season. That, that's the most you're going to get. So you need to mm. factor for that fact. You know Naby is going to be injured a couple of times during the season. And heading into the season, Liverpool's plan was to rotate Naby Keita and Thiago for that left-sided eight when they were going in with that 4-3-3 formation. Now, if that's your plan going into the season, I'm sorry, but you know there's going to be a point in time when both are going to be injured. So I I really can't feel sympathy for the club in, in that sense of thing. I really think it's, it's, it's self-inflicted. Gotcha, yeah. Well, uh... It, based on the way you would describe that, not really a solution anytime soon unless you sign a lot of players in January, which, you know, this might be a weird January, but probably not going to happen. But yeah, it's it's a problem when you keep signing players with similar characteristics of any kind. And if injury prone is one of them, that's a, that's a tough one to shake for sure. Uh, although uh, <laughs> an incidental follow-up is uh, it has seemed like Liverpool have been pressing differently if not just fully less this season do you think part of that has been to account for like you said the snafu in preseason and keeping in mind all the injuries that are already there i think it's because the players don't have the juice for it um especially in midfield now the key to the pressing chain is that midfield yes you get the likes of because if you look at the numbers for the likes of salah Firmino's having his sort of last dance season um He's he's pressing well. That front line presses well still, but there's no point if the front line presses and then the midfield can't catch up. And we've seen at the beginning of the season what was happening was the front players would go and press and the midfield wouldn't be able to catch up to cover the spaces that they're meant to cover. And then it's just easy to pass around it. And then it leaves even more gaps because, you know, you've now stretched the field a bit too much. So, which is kind of what I was saying at the beginning, where you have to pick a struggle. Either you change the tactics, which is what they've now eventually done, which is to not press as much as they used to, to drop a, a, a bit deeper, or you need to bring players in that are capable of doing it. Um, the likes of Henderson, um, for Henderson, it's just athleticism. He's not the same player he used to be. But then it's not necessarily an age thing, because... Harvey Elliott has played at that uh, right side at eight and times, and he doesn't have the acceleration. He might have the desire and the will to press, but he doesn't have the acceleration to get there as quickly as as would be needed from that role. So you kind of have to play based on the personnel that you have now at the moment, which was a not-so-athletic team capable of pressing the way they used to, or in the summer, bring in players that are able to do it. And Klopp is quite loyal so he wasn't going to do the second bit. He wasn't going to bring in the players to do it. So you, you have to change your tactics to accommodate. Got it. Well, we'll see if he's able to, to do that midseason. Doesn't feel incredibly <laughs> likely. Um, <laughs> Steve, we'll come to you now to talk about Tottenham, which uh, not more encouraging, probably. Um, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about whether Tottenham's performances would ultimately catch up to the results. So you'd have the performances improving, which would show that Tottenham did deserve to be in that top four where they'd been most of the season, or if the results would stop to start to drop to the level of the performances. And this week seems pretty damningly the latter. Um, but yeah, I was just curious your thoughts on 
this kind of downturn for Spurs and, and how much it's affected your overall perception of what Tottenham could do this season on the whole? My overall perception of what we could do on the whole was never set particularly high, I have to say. I was optimistic the same way everybody else was with, with Conte and the, the money that was spent coming in. But again, and you and I have talked about this at, at great length, Kevin, there is a psychological sense that it, that manifests itself on the pitch in the contrast between our performances against teams that we should beat easily and the top four, top six, the teams around us. And we just can't seem to raise our game sufficiently to actually compete in those games, you know, or if we do, it's a complete one-off. Um, and I, th I think that this idea of, of marrying up the performances with the points, uh, I, just to go back to something that Tad said about breaking the, the, the fixture schedule down into groups of three, because that's what managers do. They, they try to take, you know, they look at a group of three fixtures and how we can manage the squad in order to take the maximum number of points from those three fixtures uh, the, way they, the way they fall. And we have never really been able to count on getting anything except as a, as a sort of a freak positive result against the teams that we're scared to play against. We're still scared to play against them. Regardless of what Conte says, regardless of what, you know, Conte's uh, um, bluster uh, says, we are not a championship challenging squad. We're, we're just not the way things are and the way he's using the squad as well. If you have a squad of that depth, you, you, you rotate them. And I, met, I made the point earlier in, a, in a, one of the answers, I think, about, um, uh, about Harry needing a rest. You know, obviously Harry's going to want to play every game, but but you need a manager that says no. We have, you know, we now have Richarlison, we now have Dejan Kulusevski, we now have Sonny. But the longer that the two that that Sonny and and uh, Harry are misfiring based on what we know they can do, it kind of you know you it, it makes Conte try and balance off the need to keep them playing to to give them their confidence back, but also hey, we need the points against Villa, against Brighton, against, you know, Crystal Palace, against the teams that we should be superior to, you know? And the way in which you break that season down is, okay, we can get a good run of games here, and then we play Arsenal, then we play Man City, then we play Liverpool, which, you know, Tad, however Liverpool are playing at the moment, it's always a psychological challenge for us, particularly to go to Anfield. Um, so... I, I think that we haven't we the thing we haven't fixed, regardless of who our manager is or has been, is this notion of we have the belief, we have the self-belief and the confidence to know that when we go out on the pitch, we're not the underdog. We're not, you know, expected to or if we come away with a with a point, it's a good performance. We just we we haven't quite got that through our heads yet. And I think that will be reflected in when you look at our, our results uh, for, for, the, for the season as a whole, when you break it down to, you know, results against the bottom four, against the, the, the middle group in the league and against the top six or seven, um, how we perform in e against each of those groups is going to dictate uh, how you judge whether or not we're moving forward as a club. And, uh, and so far, 
it's been it's been a disappointing outcome so far. I mean, yes, we're you know, we had that tremendous start to the season, but you have to consolidate that by then saying, let's take this role that we're on, this confidence high that we're on and actually use it against the teams that we should be competing against. Um, so it's it's a conundrum, but then it always has been for, for Tottenham. There's there's as much there's as much mental work that needs to be done with with every Tottenham squad as there is tactical or strategical work on the on the on the field. Yeah, I think those are a lot of really good points. Um, maybe the one bright spot, even in this uh, <laughs> rough period, uh, have been the set pieces, which Tottenham have had the most headed goals in the Premier League thus far. Also have had the most set piece goals. Uh, this, of course, coming after bringing in Gianni Vio in the offseason to be our permanent set-piece coach. Um, so that's all really nice. I, I guess the question is, are you encouraged that scoring this many goals from set-pieces, I think it's six now in the season already, um, means that once we start scoring from open play again, we could we could <laughs> kind of push up? Or is this an either-or thing and it's really damning that as high a percentage as it is of our goals are coming from set-pieces right now? Well, I mean, the other thing, the, the the flip side of having Gianni Vio is that you, you're also rehearsing how to defend set pieces as well. I mean, that's that's one of the things that uh, that was all we were never great at set pieces at either end of the field, uh, and now we have somebody who will actually sort of spell it out to you. I mean, I I thought at the start of the season, I have to say, Dyer and Romero playing together, the combination of those two players playing together both in terms of defending set pieces when we were on the back foot and uh, uh, when Dyer specifically would go up and attack uh, corners, for example, or free kicks, um, was really going to start to pay off, pay dividends. So um, it, it's an important part of how we organize ourselves and an important part of how we um, gain the momentum in games. I mean, if we're if we're scoring from free kicks or set pieces, then that's uh, that's something that should sort of flow through the rest of the team, you know. And I, it was interesting. I was watching the Man U Chelsea game the other night, and I, I noticed that Ericsson took, um, and I would have him back in a heartbeat, by the way. Ericsson took a couple of corners, but he still couldn't beat the first man with his corners. <laughs> and, yep. uh, uh, but you know. It, it's one of those things that it affects. It has an effect on the dynamic of the of the game in that moment, but also on the sense of in in a defensive posture. This idea that hey, we're not vulnerable. We 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 can you know at least know that we're not vulnerable to uh, to these set pieces. So I, I think that has yet sti- to to still to permeate through uh, in, into uh, into people's mentality, unfortunately. But I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said once we start scoring from open play again, I mean that's that's essentially what we need to what we need to concentrate on right now. Yeah, right now it's basically you can guarantee going into a match that Kane will score and will get a set piece goal. Unfortunately, those are the same goals right now. <laughs> Hopefully, eventually that becomes two plus a game. And I, I do just want to sneak in here as we drift away from this conversation the impact that Kulisevsky being out has had on this team. Yes. The, the yes. differences in goals per game with Kulisevsky there and not there are pretty damning. Um, but uh, we'll move from there into player watch, which seems appropriate, having just called out an individual player, uh, to talk about the uh, summer signing that you've been most impressed by thus far this season. 
Um, so most impressed on a signing for Liverpool. <sighs> it's difficult to say, but to me, it's Darwin Nunes in terms of what he could become. Um, and I think the the problem for him is he comes in in the same window as Erling Haaland. Um, obviously, the price fee as well. It, yes, people will say it's the same or similar to Haaland's, but when you look at the package deal for Haaland, it's completely different. Um, but he's always going to be linked and compared to Haaland, even though I think they're not comparable in terms of where they are in their games. Haaland is a lot closer to the Mbappes of the world, whereas Nunes is very much a really, really raw diamond that is banking on the fact that he's got one of the best development coaches in world football and Klopp. And that's sort of the type of player Klopp likes to work with, is those players that are rough diamonds and, and he can nurture and mold them into what they can become. But I'm impressed with, um, obviously, his application, his willingness to just keep trying no matter how ridiculous or bad something might might get, he he just has that youthful exuberance to just keep going, and you can see what he could become. Um, at the moment, he's sort of like that Samuel Eto'o school of of striking, where it's um, if I hit it as hard as I can on target, um, based on the amount of shots I take each game, a couple of them are going to go in, and I'm going to be fine. Mm. Whereas they're starting to try and move him away from that to be a bit more precise with his finishing. Um, and then also he's coming from teams where if he gets a through ball, his job was to get his head down, run towards goal and get a shot off. Because one, he might not get that opportunity again anytime soon. And then two, chances are no one else in the team is going to be able to keep up with him because he's deceptively fast. And if he was to pick his head up, there'll be no one near him. The problem is he's playing with guys like Salah, who will get up the pitch as quickly as he does. And there are times in games where he runs on the break and there's a teammate that's wide open on the other side of the pitch and he just doesn't see them because that's not his game. He's not used to needing to pick his head up and look for a pass before he takes the shot. It's, you know, shoot first and then apologize afterwards. And, and, so if he starts to bring that side of things to to his game, which I'm sure he will eventually, then it's definitely an exciting prospect. But even with all the, you know, pressure that is on him at the moment, he's he still got as many goals as the likes of Gabriel Jesus and stuff in the league. And if you look at the different narratives between the two players, Jesus is a godsend, um, no pun intended, at the moment at Arsenal and Nunes is kind of seen by some people as either a flop or, or not fulfilling his potential. But the production is still kind of there and he's still got the promise and the potential to develop. So, yeah, I think for Liverpool, it's Nunes. But in saying that, it's still irritating that it is Nunes because you expected Liverpool to do a bit more business in the window. Um, from a Spurs perspective, uh, I and you and I have talked about this, Kev, uh, Richarlison is going to be a hugely significant signing for us. I think going forward, he's going to be he's going to be the man. He's basically like Eric Lamella with an end product, uh, and I think w that's exactly the sort of um, the sort of aggression and the sort of self belief uh, that we need in the team. And it, it all goes back to this this men mentality, this idea that you know you have to go on the park 
believing that you can win and believing that you can play well. And uh, and I think he bring he brings that. Now the the problem you know, obviously is Conte's rotation system or the way in which he needs to play him. I mean, um, uh, Richarlison Richarlison's need to play. He needs to play as many games as he can. Is is seen in convergence with Conte's need to rest Harry Kane. I don't see how we're at a situation where you know if we're playing against Bournemouth, for example. Uh, that he doesn't rest Harry and play and play Richards and give him a full ninety. So I, I think this is all going to come down to, and, th- and this obviously brings up, you know, uh, Conte's approach to substitutions and how he rotates the rotates the squad and uses people in the way in which he does. Obviously, Richardson's injured at the moment and won't be back till after the World Cup. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, with Kulisevsky out injured, that that obviously changes the options that are available to you. Uh, and and that just sort of puts more pressure on players when they're not clicking, when it's not actually happening for them. But I think when we head into the latter part of this season and next season, Richarlison is is going to really have a huge impact on uh, on how we go forward and how we how we move. Um, Perisic, I think, is a, a class act and and a really very talented player. But again, he needs to be rotated. Uh, which uh, again brings up those those same question marks about about Conte substitutions. Um, we still haven't seen really, I think, what Basuma is capable of compared to some of his performances for Brighton last year, where he was, you know, magisterial basically. And and you know, going even further, we have we haven't seen Jed Spence at all. So um, it, it's hard. To, it's hard. Apart from Richarlison, I think it's hard to get a sense of. Um, how those players are going to have individual impact on how we set up, how the team sets up. But uh, Richarlison, I'm I'm very, very, very pleased with. Cool. Well, that'll do it for us today. So if you folks like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, thanks, Kev. Um, I've been Tadio Chinakira. You can find me on Twitter at TadPredicts or at a TadPredictable um podcast which is on the epl index channel yep that was good conversation thanks guys thank you kevin for having me back uh i'm steve mcgookin you can get me on twitter at steve mcgookin or if you want to check out my non-football writing uh i'm at uh www.statesofplayproject.com thank you yeah, a pleasure having both of you. My name is Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable on Twitter or by searching EPL Roundtable in any of your podcasting services. Uh, an absolute pleasure speaking with both of you and folks at home. We hope you keep listening. Mm-hmm.